Welcome to Out of the Blank. Welcome to another episode of Out of the Blank Podcast. We are Shannon. It's a pleasure to have you on my show. Can you please introduce yourself to everyone out there listening? Uh, hello, everyone. Uh, thanks for having me on your show, Robbie. Um, my name is Shannon Bontrager. I'm a professor of history at Georgia Highlands College. It's a two-year school in the north uh, suburbs of Atlanta. Uh, and my book, Death at the Edges of Empire, came out in February 2020. And then uh, I think about a year ago, it was um, published as a paperback. So, um, so that's who I am and kind of what I'm, what I'm about. Can you tell me a little bit about what your book's about? So, yeah, uh, the full title, Death at the Edges of Empire, Fallen Soldiers, Cultural Memory, and the Making of a Nation, 1863-1921. I'm kind of reading it here. That's what it's it looks like. It's a beautiful cover. Yeah, and the University of Nebraska Press chose that cover, uh, and I thought they did a fantastic job. But basically, it is about uh, how Americans commemorate the war dead. So when soldiers go to fight in wars um, from the Civil War, I start with the Civil War, I go all the way up to World War I, uh, when the soldiers die, the commemorative traditions that Americans use, uh, they kind of have to invent them along the way because nobody really knows what to do or how to do it, how to commemorate the dead. And so they, they kind of invent it. And uh, the Civil War kind of being the beginning of that because it's the, it is the, um, well, in terms of casualties, if you add up all the wars that the United States have fought in and add them together, uh, you you don't have you still don't come up with as as many soldiers who died in the, as in the Civil War, so um, it's it's sort of a genesis of of remembering and and remembering the war dead. <clears throat> so I guess I would say too that a secondary kind of aspect of it is how society, how America as a society, remembers the past. So this idea that we have collective memory that we re that we share our memories. Um, if there is a huge event, like this is getting a little bit dated now, but, uh, when the world trade center came down, um, most people today have a memory of that and, uh, and we share that memory and it kind of becomes what I've argued a national memory. So it's kind of about how America remembers as a nation too. Kind of like um, if you ask anybody where they were on 9-11, most people could tell you they could remember exactly where they were, usually glued to the TV screen, um, watching every single minute of it and not getting up. I've heard – I've talked to plenty of memory experts that have always mentioned like that's their first example they'll ever ask somebody about you know testing their memory or something because that's a specific moment and it's a specific tragedy and it made me think like – do we only just remember loss? Is there anything that's like super happy moments that end up sticking out? It's mostly just lost stuff. It's just something that's really shocking that's just not in the average day. Like even if you you know see your 
dad that might be like coming down the street or something, or I don't know, you might see him only once a month. That's a good memory, but it's not something that's like out of the ordinary by a whole lot. Like it's a possibility that could happen. That was just a specific tragic event that was just out there. But did you go, did you start at the civil war and did you go through like, how did you, because I, I know about gold star families, I think it's called, if I'm not mistaken. Like I know that little bit and it's just weird. Like when did we start being able to, I, obviously you can't process death. It's very, very hard to talk about, you know, saying that your family member died in battle or something, but we know this is also an effect of what happens sometimes as well too. It's, you know, you get casualties and it's a hard thing to deal with. So I'm just wondering what the evolution was like. Well, I think it's what makes it a nice topic or an interesting topic, not nice in, 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 in any way, I guess, but an interesting topic to, to think about because I think what it shows is that Americans don't really call, count the cost of war. So um, even in the most recent war from the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan, a lot of people think those wars are over, but they're not because we're still paying for them with veterans who get sick um, from burn pits or from various things. And we can think of Vietnam with Agent Orange and things like that, that these wars, when, when the nation goes to war, uh, people don't count the cost in terms of the dead and in terms of the of how this war will continue long after it officially ends. And so I think this makes this um, an interesting case. And the reason I started with the Civil War is because um, it's, it's such a huge moment, uh, again, catastrophic uh, for many families. Uh, I think nearly 2% of the entire U.S. population died in that war, um, which if we roughly estimate, you know, today, that might be seven or eight million people if we calculate for um, the overall population. So it's, it's huge. And, um, and it's a moment where the memories become national because so many people are connected to this war. Almost everybody is touched by it in one way or the other, either they knew someone directly or indirectly that, um, that it becomes this collective grieving, uh, people need to, um, they need they need a question answered. And that question is, you know, why did my son have to die? Um, what was it? Was his sacrifice worth it? And so the United States, the federal government has to come up with um, a valid argument for that. I mean, they sent these boys and men away and they're the government's responsible for their deaths. So they have to commemorate them. And I think Lincoln's Gettysburg Address, another reason why I started here is because it's, it's one of the first speeches that really attempts to articulate that. George Washington and uh, presidents of the past, they never really articulated this kind of collective memory, but, um, but Lincoln says that, you know, Americans are obligated to remember what these men did here. And, um, and he makes a, what I call Lincoln's promise. He, he makes a promise to the dead that the living will remember the dead uh, because they they fought in this noble cause of, of emancipation and freeing slaves. So that's, that's kind of the reason why I started there. It's unprecedented in American history. After that speech was given, I mean, 
what was some things that the government did or just people did to recognize that sense? Because I'm a patriot at heart as much as I might talk about like a deep state or something. I'm 100 percent a patriot at heart. I've been to the Pearl Harbor Museum. I've seen the names on the walls there. It's a very heavy situation. Anybody that's a human being with any emotion is going to feel every ounce of that. And it's, you know, it leaves you basically can't really do anything the rest of your day just because you're just so sad. And it's not really an aspect of just being, you know, super sad and obviously lives were lost, but it's also about knowing what people sacrificed to make sure that, you know, you could live the life that you do live in a lot of aspects as well, too. Well, one thing just before that speech was given, Congress passed a law to create cemeteries, which basically become national cemeteries that this had never been done before, that the federal government was going to buy land and bury the war dead and then maintain those cemeteries. I think that's happening in 1862. There's just so many people dying. This, 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 the scale is just so incredible that they have to invent all these new traditions because there's just so many people dying. And so uh, that's one thing that Congress did. They, uh, the problem was, it was kind of a military problem in that um, there was no f- real functioning before of collecting the dead. So um, you'd have a battle and the generals, if there was a kind of a break in the battle, the generals might maybe say, you know, okay, go out, recover the dead and then bury them. But then when the battle shifted, you might actually conduct the next day's battle or, or a future battle over that place where you just buried the dead. And this was a huge problem because there was no way for them to to do this. So Congress passed this law in 1862 that says, okay, we're going to formalize and we're going to kind of respect um, and appropriate money and build these cemeteries uh, for the dead. So it was kind of like a a military problem, like a a tactical problem. (laughs) We've got to get these bodies out of the way so that we can conduct military affairs. And then, of course, Lincoln turns this, I think, into a, a, a collective memory for all of us to say, well, listen, like you were saying, you know, your, your patriotism, you go to see these things, you go to see the names in Pearl Harbor, or if you're like me, um, the Vietnam Wall in Washington, D.C. is a huge touching moment um, to see all the names there. And the reason we do that is basically because Lincoln promised, he made a promise at Gettysburg that that the federal government will remember the war dead. And as US citizens, this is um, a duty and an obligation that we, that, that Lincoln committed us to. So um, that's kind of what happened immediate, immediately after the, the Civil War. It gets a little complicated as the Civil War is over and um, battles take place in like the plains uh, as the US expands after the Civil War. And when people like General Custer die at the Battle of Little Bighorn, it's a little bit problematic because Lincoln specifically said in his Gettysburg Address that we will remember these dead here because they died for a noble cause. And, you know, out West where Custer dies, it's a question as to whether, you know, trying to dine in a fight to force Native Americans onto reservations, whether that is a noble cause or not. And so there was this debate in the 1870s and 1880s as to whether 
whether these kinds of soldiers would also be remembered. Would they also be put in these national cemeteries? And it was a, a long process and a long debate, but at the end of the day, Americans argued that, that they should. Um, and Custer becomes kind of a, a symbol of that um, and a controversial symbol of that. Is that the Battle of Little Bighorn? <laughs> yeah, that's Battle of Little Bighorn. But there's oh. other battles that takes place too. And there's other, other sort of moments. Um, particularly, I tell the story about Sitka, Alaska, where there's these soldiers there. It's a sad story because allegedly, it's kind of a legend, um, but apparently there's these two soldiers they're in Alaska, they're in Sitka, and they're, they're, they fought in the Civil War. So they should receive Lincoln's promise, right? Because because they had this, they're veterans of the Civil War, they fought for, uh, for freedom, for the emancipation of slaves. But in Alaska, they're carrying out a survey, there's, they both fall in love with this Russian woman. And they basically decide to have a duel over who will have her hand. So they they go out in the woods on a hunting expedition and they have this duel and the one kills the other one. And he brings him back and they say, um, oh, it was a hunting accident. And so they don't know what to do. What do we do with this person? We can't send him back to Gettysburg, bury him there. It's, it's in Alaska. So they decide to build a, a cemetery there in Alaska, the Sitka Alaska Cemetery. And they think maybe it'll just be one or two soldiers buried there. Um, sadly, the soldier who survived the duel, he goes to this Russian woman to win her hand and she rejects him. So he commits suicide. And apparently under, under his body, he left a note that confessed all of this, that this wasn't a hunting accident. This is a duel. And he died. And so he's buried next to his friend in the cemetery. So here's a question. Should we commemorate these two men? Because it's pretty foolhardy the way they died. It's, I mean, it's some, I would argue, kind of a pathetic way to die. Not very nationalistic. They're not fighting for any noble cause. But they had fought um, in the Civil War. So what do we do with them? And there's long drawn out debate about what to do with Sitka. They want to, at one point, they want to dig everybody up and bring them to, to San Francisco. That's so expensive. So eventually Sitka does become a national cemetery, but not until the 1920s. So the event that I'm describing to you took place in, I think uh, the, the early 1870s, 1872, 1873. And it's not until 1920. So that's uh, what pushing 50 years or so of, of, um, of the cemetery not being a national cemetery. So eventually it does become a cemetery uh, that the federal government over, oversees. And today, uh, if you look at national cemetery, Sitka, Alaska is listed there, but originally it wasn't. So I'm arguing that there's this kind of transition that's taking place, that as America moves further and further out West and in, uh, becomes imperialistic, it has to justify um, the, shall we say, the not necessarily the noble cause of empire. It has to try to justify that in order to, to expand. And one way of doing that is, to buy, is by justifying the war dead as being 
um, noble. I'm sorry, maybe I'm just I'm just a little bit ignorant to this, but I mean, doesn't it seem like it's a little bit more kind of rude to isn't it like their final resting place like that has been the notion throughout history like ancient history is like this is their resting place because this is where they died this is where you mark their spot but i mean like carrying or digging up bodies and then moving them just to be at a national part i mean what do you think about that well this is that's interesting to bring that up because this is a huge debate that goes on from the civil war all the way up to the first world war that is the very question shouldn't they be buried where they died um, and some people will say yes, but some people will say no. For example, when we get to the first world war or even before that, when we get to America's invasion of Cuba and the Philippines in 1898, 1899, moving forward, these are wars, uh, beyond the nation's borders. And a lot of people are really upset. These are controversial wars and they want the bodies brought home. If you think about it in some ways, you could argue that loved ones, it's easier for them to grieve if they have a grave that they can visit. And you were talking about the Gold Star Mothers. Um, in the 1930s, the federal government paid, uh, I think it was over $3 million during the Depression for, the, for over 3,000 mothers to go to France to visit the, the gravesite of their son who had died in the First World War because the, the bodies were now brought back home. So um, here we have federal expenditures of tax dollars being used to <laughs> allow a mother just a few moments with the grave of their child. There is an argument to be made here that, um, you know, it helps the living grieve when there's a cemetery nearby. Now, if you're dying in conflict in Manila, Philippines, or Havana, Cuba, or in somewhere in France, you know, think about that expenditure from a military perspective to bring that body back home. It's incredibly expensive and, and controversial. Some people say that they should, they should, they should be buried where they die. And some people say, well, we should bring them back. Well, I mean, throughout, I, I think a lot of cultures, there's always been this aspect of being honored when you die. I mean, Valhalla is a good example if you talk about the Norse, but I mean, the Gettysburg Address, I mean, it being powerful enough to keep the federal government, you know, accountable for bodies and people that are lost. I mean, I know about bodies being flown home all the time, at least the ones that can be flown home and it being like a, a, a kind of a high mission to be able to do so. And it, I think it's important to respect the families as well, too, in that aspect. And I get the it's easier to grieve thing, but like, does the government really, you know, think about that? I mean, it's an individual person that's experiencing loss. And I mean, I don't know, I, I guess maybe I, I'm not trying to look at it from like a deep state angle. Obviously, I'm just looking at it from more of like a, a money expenditure issue where I start going. I mean, me and you as people, we know if we lost someone, we would want our family members brought home. But is the government thinking about that? You know, a lot of these people are disconnected from a lot of these wars, too, where I'm wondering, is the Gettysburg Address really that powerful to keep that going in a lot of aspects? Well, uh, it's a tough so, question. I'm sorry. I gave you a lot. No, no, no. It's a good question. It's fantastic because that gets to the heart of the very issue in that, of course, the you might have individual politicians. We could think of General Westmoreland. He gets accused of this quite a bit from Vietnam of being detached and particularly in Vietnam, they, 
they worry about body counts more than they do about strategy is, is the accusation. And, and so, yeah, there might be these individuals who do that, but at the end of the day, the United States is a democracy. And so there is, um, on some degree, politicians in power have to be, they get, they get held to accountability every election cycle. And so if you're gonna go to war, um, you've got to justify that. Otherwise you're gonna get voted, voted out. And if you go to war, but you have no, um, this is a lot of the controversy about Vietnam that it seemed pointless and aimless. Well, then you're gonna have a lot of very unhappy uh, people back in the domestic sphere. So one way that, Amer that the government can try to argue, and I think Lincoln makes a nice model here for this is to say that um, uh, we do care and we're gonna spend so much money to bring these soldiers home and we're gonna do so in a respectful way that uh, we're gonna prove that we care. I mean, to this day, um, the United States spends millions and millions of dollars. They have a, a, a part of the, um, the base in Honolulu is um, dedicated to finding MIAs and PO, well, probably not POWs anymore, uh, but certainly people who have died overseas or were missing in action in the remains. There's, there's over 80,000 soldiers. To this day, there's over 80,000 soldiers uh, in American history, who's never, whose remains have never been recovered, right? So sometimes the military likes to say, we, 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 we don't leave anybody on the battlefield. Well, actually you do. Um, sometimes it's not intentional because the remains might have been like an aircraft that's gotten shot down or something like that. But there's 80,000 soldiers to this day that their remains are, are still not recovered. And the United States, this goes all the way back to the Second World War, uh, from Vietnam to Korea to the Second World War, even, even some First World War veterans. And we spend millions of dollars every year doing research. When we recover remains, they take them to, um, to Honolulu, to Pearl Harbor, and they, uh, they try to identify them, right? So I, I actually have a friend who's an underwater archaeologist, and she's actually working with the state government to be able to find you know, like it, people like this and deal with this specific issue, which is something I was new to when I was at the Pearl Harbor Museum. This was probably when I was 15 or 16 years old. I'm 24 now. And there was a guy in a wheelchair, an elderly man, and he had served and they were talking to him about what happens if he gets cremated. They can stick his have an underwater team go down there and stick his urn in, in the ship, which I was like that to me, that's just eerie. If you're a person hearing that, like just even talking about what's going to happen when you die would be nuts. It's like, Hey, I'm still alive. You know, I got a couple good years on me, but it was just interesting to see, like, I mean, is if that's what that person wants that they're we're capable of being able to do that too, which I think is good too. But I mean, what happens if someone gets blown up by an IED or someone just explodes into dust? I mean, dog tags i think are a good example of even people were accepting that at a point too you know i can't bring this person's body back home with me but i can bring dog tags to it and i mean that's a lot from a soldier aspect as well too at least from what i'm gathering about it you know it's not necessarily just a government 
thing like, hey, you're required to do this. More like this is my friend and I lost him in battle and I can't bring him home with me. So I got a piece of him, a diary, a photo, something like that to give to whoever family members left over, which it puts more responsibility into the individual person. But it also shows what we do, you know, when we do experience loss, whether we're related to the person or not, if we're connected with someone in battle, I mean, band of brothers in a sense, you know, I think that's pretty important. It is. And I think a lot of soldiers have this camaraderie on the battlefield. Um, you know, dog tags didn't come around until the First World War. So you think about all these guys who died in the Civil War, a lot of times, like they're totally misidentified because there's no name on them. They don't have anything. And then in, in Cuba and the Philippines, they, they had these little bottles. And if you died, you were supposed to write in pencil who the person was and then put it in this corkin this bottle and you were supposed to bury the bottle with the dead they didn't have dog tags so they're doing this but the problem there was is that oftentimes animals might come along and dig up the bottle or it or the 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 pencil writing would get exposed to air somehow the cork wasn't good enough and and so you couldn't read it anymore and so it's only since world war one where we've had this idea of of dog tags the whole identification of soldiers which i think is an important point this in the history of the world, we don't care about the names of the soldiers until really we get to the modern era, particularly democracies. It's not enough just to have a, a cemetery or a monument. You have to have the name. That's why um, the Vietnam Wall is so important because it's, it just it lists the names. The names have now become incredibly, incredibly important, and it shows you know the democratization of of remembering, if you will, that we, we now, it, you know, in the civil war, we didn't even remember the names of people. And, uh, and now it becomes imperative. I mean, even with the world trade center every year, they read the names of all the people who, who perished. And, um, I think that's quite interesting because if that would have happened a hundred years ago, we would have never worried that much about the names or maybe 150 years ago, we wouldn't have worried that much about the individual. Now it's an individual that plays a role in the in the way that we remember the the the, the event or the the conflict. Well, when we talk about cultural memory, do you think it helps us understand, I guess, the effects of war? Like, I think if you talk to a lot of like you know people from Russia or people from like obviously a country that was involved more heavily that experienced battle on their land, like I've heard this from Oliver Stone. I don't necessarily. Agree you know, agree a hundred percent, but I can understand the perspective to it, which is that like everyone that, you know, experienced a battle over there is connected to a generation that experienced that tragic loss of war. And he brings up the argument that a lot of people here today, is just, we've never experienced really one on our shores before we experienced like maybe an act of terrorism, like nine 11 or something, but the actual, like an actual war, like on our shores, most of the time it's overseas or something like that. And it, it says, he says that it's like, kind of like we're disconnected from it, which I mean, it's just an interesting point. I mean, we, we don't, we're fortunate not to have this severe amount of loss or, you know, bombs going off or explosions and tanks rolling down our doorstep. Like, I think that's why a lot of people are interested in the Ukraine thing that's going on right now. It's because it's never, it's never, never been an issue like that here before. And I'm not trying to make obviously long examples or 
conclusions or tying knots or lines to anything. I'm just saying that's a real thing though. I think to me, that's part of the reason, not only does their heart go out to these people, but also they've just never, that's so foreign to most people in the United States of a tank rolling up down your street or something like that. I mean, it's not like that in other places as well either. Well, I guess I would say thinking about that, I think that gives you a sense of how people remember the civil war because that was here on the U.S. soil and people were connected to that. And so I do think that that gives you an idea of how people in the 1860s and 70s might have thought about that war. It's slightly different in Ukraine because Ukraine and in kind of Eastern European countries, um, this is where all these global conflicts of the 20th century kind of originate, World War I, World War II, uh, Ukraine has been invaded or taken over more than you know once, and it is really catastrophic, particularly now for a lot of people in Ukraine um, who maybe themselves haven't had to deal with this in the past directly. But there's a long history of you know, the Soviet Union tried to commemorate, I mean, they, they, they do commemorate the Second World War differently, maybe than people in the West, but everybody, I think what I guess what I'm trying to say is that memory and our need to remember is a, is a universal human need, no matter what political system um, you live under, uh, everybody has that need and desire and the political systems are going to try to tap into that and connect you, the individual, to the nation in a way that uh, that v- validates the the government's actions, I guess, shall we say? And memory can be one way that that happens. Um, I'm I'm going to be very interested for this war in Ukraine to be over. Uh, I think everybody is, and kind of on a personal professional note, one thing that I'll be looking to in the future is how this war will be remembered. Because as you say, it's been so digitally everywhere. How will, how will we remember it? Not only how will Ukrainians remember it, but, but how will you and I remember it? Will we care you know, 20 years from now or 10 years from now about this conflict? Um, these are all, I think, interesting questions for us to consider. And what does it say about us um, that we are concerned about Ukraine now? Uh, if we continue to be concerned about it in the future, uh, I think that that would be, you know, an interesting way to think about it. Well, I mean, look how disconnected we are from just the civil war in general. I mean, you hear people mention it if they're talking about equal rights or something like that, but. Do people really fully understand the scope of it? Like when you were doing your research and you were writing your book and everything, you probably got a whole different just idea and you probably got a lot of information filled in for things that you weren't aware of before, just because a lot of this stuff isn't really necessarily taught. Like we learn about the Gettysburg Address and you learn about some basic crucial historical moments and you obviously learn about loss. But like when they put in a gravity of a situation about brothers and family members fighting each other and you start realizing like we're doing the same kind of things and a lot of aspects today too. I mean, someone blocks somebody on Facebook that are family members, even though they're going to see them at Thanksgiving or something like that. 
it's different in the gravity that no one's dying and you're not fighting weapons. But it's also like we're a little bit disconnected from those times. I mean, I still consider that event highly relevant today, um, just on an aspect of like it's an important part of our history. Yet, you know, obviously you got people that have attention spans that are 30 seconds long. You're not going to have them understanding it in a good scope. But I think it's important parts of history, like, you know, these crucial aspects. That's why when I came across your book, I was like, you probably have a whole perspective. I mean, even if you're tracking the evolutionary process of it, when things started to change, how we look at stuff now, I mean, in that moment, do you think people were reacting the way that we would react if something like that happened today? Well, okay. I'll give you a couple of examples. I talk about this in the conclusion of the book and I don't want to necessarily be political, but some people will probably necessarily suggest this anyway, but Lincoln's, so you're talking about relevancy in the here and now. Uh, I'll, I'll point out the first thing, a small thing. I think the civil war is relevant today. For example, when you saw the events January 6th um, in 2021, 2020, uh, no, 2021, uh, you, uh, there was a guy, it's a, it's a, it's a, an image all over the uh, internet. Sorry, my phone's ringing. <laughs> um, there's an image all over the internet now. There's a guy who takes a Confederate battle flag into the US Capitol. And that was the first time a Confederate battle flag had ever, ever been in the, in the US Capitol. Um, and a question we might ask is like, why did that guy do that? And I think there is an answer to that he is, he's thinking about the Civil War, at least that's some part of his memory. He's thinking about the Civil War. He's thinking about the Confederacy. And he is trying to make a point there that even though we are, you know, a century and a half removed from the events, he still finds that this is relevant um, to try to attack the, the federal government with a symbol of the Confederacy. That's kind of an interesting. So I would argue that we, that it still is quite relevant. And then as far as Lincoln's promise goes, here's a second point that I'll kind of bring out that I think is interesting to think about. Um, so if you remember, uh, towards the end of the former president, Donald Trump's, uh, presidency, there were these events that took place in, uh, Africa in which there were, I think four U S soldiers that were, um, that were, uh, basically ambushed by Al Qaeda linked, uh, terrorists. And um, one of these individuals, their body, got, he got separated from the rest. And then he died and his body was left on the battlefield for several, several days. And it caused this uproar in American history. And, and then um, his, at the time, President Trump called the soldier's wife and she did not take the call very well. He didn't make a good call. He kind of stumbled. He apparently didn't know the soldier's name and she was. She felt uh, more uh, insulted rather than. Yeah. Than comforted for sure. However you want to read that, I'll let everybody read that how they want to. 
But then the, the next day, uh, his chief of staff, uh, General Kelly, um, he got up and gave a speech that I say in my book is the anti-Gettysburg Address because he basically said in this presentation, he's trying to cover for um, President Trump's botch call. Um, he says, you know, you citizens don't know what we military go through. You don't know anything about us. You don't know the, the, the difficulties. You don't know how the camaraderie that we have. You don't know anything about us. And you don't care. That's, that's I'm paraphrasing a bit liberally, but that's sort of the, the message that he gave. And uh, it was an incredibly controversial moment because I argued in, my, in the conclusion of my book that that, that is... And that's the anti-Gettysburg Address, because if Lincoln at the Gettysburg Address is saying, no, the living will remember the dead. It's an obligation that citizens have to remember the, the dead. And General Kelly is saying, you guys have, you guys have, uh, you know, forsaken that promise. And in a kind of an accusatory way, um, it just erupted in a firestorm of controversy. Uh, lots of veterans came out and, you know, criticized General Kelly uh, for that. He had his supporters too. But I think it's very interesting in this regard, whether, whatever way you want to come down um, on the, the topic, I think it's interesting to show that here we have from 1863 to, two, to 2018 or whatever it was now, I can't really remember the year. Um, you know, you have this tradition of what I'm calling Lincoln's promise that we are obligated to remember the, the dead. And, and he, you have a Republican president who initiates this kind of commemorative tradition. And then you have a Republican chief of staff articulating for another Republican administration saying that that promise is dead and that it's the citizenry's fault for, for, uh, for reneging on this, this obligation uh, to remember the dead. And, and so there, I think it's kind of an interesting thing to, to, think about that actually the past is in a lot of ways at least shaping the way that we think about shaping the way that we commemorate um the war dead uh even to this day i um you probably i'm gonna ask you a question i i know that when it comes to the politics thing it's very very dicey because obviously people are going to pick and hear what they want to hear they're going to side with what they want to side i can just give you the benefit of doubt i have the most controversial take I don't care for politics. I just, I, I don't I, like, I, like I said, the benefits of thinking if it's a deep state, you don't care who the president is. Just go. <laughs> but well, no, but the politics, political question is important because Lincoln is political too. When Lincoln issues the Gettysburg Address, that's a totally political statement because he's basically saying, uh, no, you've got to stay with me. We, this war is going badly up until 1863. The U.S., the United States is losing. And he's saying, everybody has to stick with me. We have to continue to fight. These soldiers have to continue to die because of it's such a noble cause. We cannot abandon them, right? I mean, no president would ever say in the middle of a war, okay, we're done. Let's just forget. And all those lives, you know, now are meaningless. Uh, the, anytime the president uh, makes these sort of meanings, it is political, I think. Well, so um, I, I take your point. You don't want to. No, no, no. It's good. It was I'm gonna... just trying to say there is a political. Yeah. Um, meaning here that we shouldn't ignore that's shouldn't what i'm ignore. saying it's gonna yeah. it was gonna lead into my question is do you just do you 
where I would stand with this would be is like, do they honestly care about the people that were lost? Or are they just doing it just for political reasoning? You know, if someone makes a statement or someone does that, is it just to get votes? Is it just to look good in the front of the public? I mean, would we, if they build a memorial and they don't mention the memorial, but they honor the names of the people, would people still be happy with them? Would they still vote for this person? I mean, it gets into that thing. I mean, I think when you look at the Gettysburg Address, you got to look at did Abraham Lincoln actually care about the soldiers? I guarantee you that he did. Just on an aspect of if you listen to that speech, it's a very powerful thing. I mean, you could be the best damn public speaker, but I don't think you could craft out that type of emotion that you get out of it as well, too. But then you start translating it onto other events in history and this culture, this idea that we keep on carrying through. And you start wondering if somebody acknowledges an incident or a war or names that were lost in a battle today, are they just doing it to keep up with the same thing that happened so long ago? Do, or do they actually care about the names that were lost? And it's a real moral question. I've heard families that have lost people that bring up this aspect, like what did my son die for? And there becomes these arguments about Vietnam. I talked to Peter Kuznick, who wrote Untold, wrote Untold History of the United States, and he has a completely different take and shatters you to this whole new reality of what the Vietnam War kind of was about. And I think, I mean, it's it's not insane to think that. And the idea that that would be labeled as like, oh, that's not true. It's like, well, a lot of things get done for political gain. I mean, a lot of things get done in this aspect of doing things. I mean, it's very hard. A lot of these, I, I understand the side of the government. I really do. I bet it's just like a doctor giving someone a cancer diagnosis. It's gotta be difficult to look at a crying mother. You're going to feel that emotion. But at the same time, you get into the land of like, when it's a memorial on things, the acknowledgement, the overall, like I'm going to go here and it's a televised event. I mean, you transfer that over to just funerals that happened later. I mean, funerals later, there were songs created to boost up morale and be this whole patriotic thing. I mean, I, I don't know, like I said, it might get into more controversial territory, but I think these are good questions to raise and good things. to. Well, they are. Absolutely. I give you a, a couple examples. I don't know. I can't really answer your question because I don't know what every individual is necessarily like. Um, I'll, I can say on the one hand, yes, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter if the president of the United States cares about the people or not. He has to at least show. That's part of the point that I'm trying to make is that this is a ritual and tradition. You have to show concern and care. And when you don't, um, it's really, it can really be problematic. And I think that's something that uh, Donald Trump was affected by because he was the, there was reports that he said a couple of things pretty derogatory about World War One soldiers when he visited France. And then, of course, he said some really mean-spirited things about um, Senator McCain uh, when McCain was a, a prisoner of war. Um, and it, I think, you know, that affected a lot of, I think it affected people. Um, now, whether does a person care about this or not? I mean, you know, I so I'm thinking about like General Eisenhower, who's president of the United States. Now, you know, he was a military general. He came up through the ranks. He didn't actually see any combat until the Second World War because he was too young to get involved in the First World War. Uh, but I would imagine as president, you know, if you're a military general, you would you would think about these, you would think about these things. You don't know the actual names of people, probably, but you know when the president, when he knows, he's gotta say, I'm making a decision here where people are gonna die. And he's got to weigh that up for the benefit of security or the nation or things like that. Um, 
I don't know. I mean, we're, they are human beings at the end of the day. Yeah, they're elite. They, they're elites, I suppose, but they are human beings. And I would imagine that particularly... There Enter that be. deep state talk with me. Come on now. Come on. Come to my <laughs> side. There has to, be a, there has to be a human... I think I just think that there has to be a human recognition that they they've ordered, you know, soldiers, people to sacrifice. And I, 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 I think if they're going to do that, I think if they're going to do that. They're going to have to continually justify that decision. And one way they can justify that decision, even if they don't know a, a soldier's individual name, is they can they can pay honor homage to a memorial or to, you know, a cemetery or something like that. It's the least that they can do. Right. I would I would throw my hat in the ring that the reason why we probably vote more people that have combat experience is also for that reason as well, too. I think they understand the gravity of things like that. I noticed that about Kennedy's administration. Now, I've I'm not a Kennedy fanboy. I'm not like the ones that are like, oh, like I'm only going to talk about the good stuff. And I look at both sides of this human, but I noticed his transfer or his transition from running on this platform of being a cold warrior to experiencing real change from the effects in Vietnam and a lot of other things involved as well too, where he made us a very, I would say a very good speech saying that I'd rather my kids be red than dead. You know, the nuclear ban. I mean, that's a powerful thing. I mean, that's a, I guess a statement that shocked a lot of people. A lot of people didn't like Kennedy eventually kind of transitioned to liking this new version because it was new to them they they thought you know the idea of being soft on communism was not accepted back then and kind of realizing that there's not this soft on communism aspect but just not wanting to go to war to experience casualties i mean yes well that's a great question you know that's a great scenario you think about the cuban missile crisis you know i mean (laughs) you're not just talking about soldiers you're talking about you know civilians and so you know he I would imagine that he was thinking about these things at the same time. I don't know if you have to make a decision. I don't know if you can let yourself get caught up in the, uh, you have to count the cost. Yes. You know, but you can't necessarily allow this idea to, to, to affect your decision. You have to make the right decision, whatever that decision is. So I have no idea. I have no idea. I'm sure there are callous people in the government and also callous people uh, down the street from me who don't care. But I also think that there's lots of people who do care and um, they care enough that they uh, are willing to go to Congress to get money appropriated to build these memorials. We might find the memorials to be somewhat controversial but um, there is this, I think, recognition that if you're going to go to war and if you're going to serve or sacrifice this, it has to be meaningful. It cannot be, it cannot be a meaningless sacrifice. And if the public thinks it is meaningless, then they will not support uh, that decision. So I, I agree with you on that. I just, I'll, I'll bring up the question. What about people with espionage? Like people that were like spies that got captured and that kind of were killed? I mean, would that cons- would that be considered something that like I, there's a lot of people I've heard just from like talking to people and like who research the intelligence community and like the number of people that are lost and like the documentation it's like we don't even really have documentation on who these individuals were. That's why it's so interesting when you get like a diary of one of these guys. I think Guy Little was a British intelligence 
Um, I don't know what they do to commemorate him, but I spoke with someone who found all of his diaries and has like the most information. He's actually by the museum just recommended as the person, like the go-to guy on that dude. And it's like, yeah, you have a lot of individual actors and it's like this option of secrecy. Like you might be involved in something that the general public might not know about threat to national security, whatever you want to say. But then what happens if they die? Do they get remembered? And I think that's why we have like these interesting movie Hollywood ideas of like an individual spy who's based on this person. And then people have to go and find out who that person is. But there's no recognition of that person. You know what I mean? Like, I don't know. That's just an interesting question, I thought. Yeah, it is. But I think that's getting out of outside my wheelhouse a little bit because I don't know that much about the Espionage Network. But I would imagine that there's some people who have such a undercover connection that they can never really be acknowledged that wouldn't surprise me if that was the case but i can say there are people who can be um who can who can go through this process to be turned into villains or to be you know enemies of the state we can think of uh the the famous one in the 1920s is sacco and vanzetti where they were accused of of murder and they were put on trial and uh executed and um, they said to their dying day that they they were innocent and that they were being accused of being they were they were put on trial for being an anarch for being anarchists. That's what they were really being put on trial for. Um, and eventually they get uh, posthumously pardoned in the things in the 1980s or something like that. So, but you know these individuals like this can be can be turned into enemies of the state, if you will, uh, particularly if they are um, seen to be um, communist, I guess, or anarchist at the, in the 1920s. Um, you know, that can happen too. You can have a, this, this, you can use this collective memory to, to, to challenge individuals and to challenge ideas and to try to prevent people from remembering these kinds of characters. So I don't know if I can really speak about espionage, but I do know that there's these enemies of the state that will, um, that can be, you know, kind of um, forgotten, yeah. if you will. Did you have any hard moments when you were researching your book and writing it? Did you have any things that you just felt like you just didn't understand or there was something that just, I guess, might have pulled on something you know had you at this moment where you're kind of taken back a little bit uh so there's this yes i did there is um i actually think this is one of the best chapters in the book um there is this uh there's this guy named arthur bluthenthal he's from wilmington north carolina and he played football for princeton university in fact he played center for them. He's only 5'9", 185 pounds, but he was the center for the Princeton Tigers in, in um, 1908 or whatever it was that they won the national championship. Um, he goes to volunteer. His parents are German. His parents immigrated to the United States from Germany, and they're Jewish, uh, and they're living in Wilmington, North Carolina. And then he volunteers. Before the United States gets involved in World War One. he goes to volunteer, not as part of the United States, just on his own. And he's serving as an ambulance driver for the French Foreign Legion and, uh, or the French, not the Foreign Legion, but the, uh, the Foreign Auxiliary uh, Hospital um, 
crew. He's running, he's running a, um, an ambulance back and forth in uh, what is today Serbia. And there's this moment where uh, photographs, you know, they, they have these uh, new cameras that are handheld. Kodak makes these cameras now in, in the World War I that were handheld cameras. It was revolutionary for the time. People could take them, put them in their pocket and then take them out and take pictures. And he, he took several pictures. And there's this moment where uh, he takes this picture of, so they're in this village surrounded around their ambulances. They're just about ready to get in them to go get the wounded from the front lines. And the Germans start hitting them with artillery shells. And there was a girl, he said, she, she must've been like 10 years old. She was like, 15 feet away from him and she got hit by the shell and it just eviscerated her body it was incredibly gruesome body parts were all over the ambulances and um they had to it was terrible anyway um bluthenthal took his camera out and he mentions he writes on the back that he had blood from this girl was splattered on him but she he took a picture and it was one of the saddest moments i've i think ever witnessed he takes a picture of this girl's grandfather who has come out and you can see him leaning over this. It's not even a human being. It's just a few body parts and they're just sobbing. And, um, and his grandfather's kind of about to pick them up and, and he takes this, this picture of it. Um, it, it's just heartbreaking. And it was really difficult. It was really difficult for me to interpret and to think about. Um, but yeah, that was a tough, I, I, I actually saw the photograph. It's a really tough photograph to look at. And particularly when you know exactly what he's, he's, he's taking a picture of it's gruesome. Did um, you said that was the Vietnam war? No, World War One. World War One. Okay, because um, I, I had a guest on here who created Holland Sphere. I don't know if you've ever heard of that, but um, it's about media's representation about war, and it's like this sphere. There's a circle of consensus and all this. So you have heard of it? No, I oh. I have not. But that doesn't surprise me. That makes sense. Yeah. But he um yeah, he specifically talked about Vietnam reporting on this thing and then watching how like the spheres have kind of changed today. I mean, it opened up the public to the gruesome pictures and footage of the Vietnam war where people were starting to see what the hell was going on over there when before they were just like sending troops over there without knowing what's happening. You know, you get a response if your son made it or not, but, and it's just like, you start realizing like, I mean, even with um, Johnson, there's a photo of Johnson on air force one and he's being sworn in. Now, when the president dies, who is Kennedy, you immediately get sworn in. You don't need an official thing. But if you look into Johnson's background, the Secret Service have horror stories about the guy. He wasn't very nice at the time. He changed, apparently. But he wanted Jackie, pulled her from the back where Kennedy's body was and had him up front. And it's a famous photo. Kennedy, Jackie Kennedy's wearing like the dress with blood still on it. Johnson's sitting there getting sworn in. And then there's the famous wink where one of his friends, and that's why people think he was part of it. I don't think that, but I just say that's a really crappy thing to do. And it's like this disconnect feeling of emotion. And you kind of start learning a little bit more. And I mean, these are just like, look at the media when Kennedy was killed. I mean, they were taking photos of the people that were covering on the, on the, on the Hill because of shots were being fired. They were covering their child. I think it's a, uh, Oh God, I'm going to blank on his name. Newman. It's something Newman. His name's, I don't know. I've, his last name's Newman. 
but it's a famous photo where he's on top of his child because shots were just fired at the motorcade and the news every news station at this time was already in the mindset of no matter what happens you get your shot you get that picture taken and they didn't even cover and it's like a famous photo you can look at the jfk archives that they have they've colorized them to make them easier for people to look at now because black and white was so terrible but they were like standing there and like taking photos of these people like right up to him and these people are freaking out because shots just got fired i thought it was a reenactment and then i start learning about the policy with media where it was like no matter what happens you keep the camera rolling and i was like man that's we all know like photographs where you capture the moment and you really get the gravity of the situation and the horrible stuff that was going on I mean, so graphic to where it makes your stomach curl but I, well it's that's just, it's interesting you say that because this picture which is in my book uh the the, the image is in there. Um, it's not, I guess in a way, it's not part of mass media. It's just a private photograph. But the disconnect, you say, is very interesting because Arthur Bluthenthal himself says, I took this picture. I don't know why I took it. Like, I didn't care about the child. He, he says this, like, I didn't care about the family. In fact, he doesn't really speak. He think, he kind of belittles them. He, he kind of says, you know, they're, they're coming out looking for all their children and, and it's all chaotic and crazy. And they, they, don't know, they don't even know how to duck and get out of the way of a shell, he sort of suggests. And so he says, I took this photograph just because it seemed like I did it nonchalantly. It seemed like it was the proper thing to do. And I was like, I'm reading it. I was like, oh my God, like he's so disconnected from what he's taken a picture of. I mean, this is a moment of human drama of trauma and he just kind of takes his camera out because you know uh thought it was a good photograph that might make a nice keepsake or something i don't know it was it was so bizarre and i think what i argue in the book is that he took this photograph because he's he disconnected he this war these people they don't mean anything to him he's just there he's doing his job and um he's it's it's an alien world to him most of the people would have been muslim um or christian and and um and you know he just he can't relate he can't relate at all and so even in private i guess not just mass media but a lot of us even when we take private photographs we oftentimes are maybe disconnected from what's really happening um in front of us even though it's it's a shocking shocking moment I, uh, that was a thing I did with the Kennedy assassination. I mean, I looked at family photographs, a video of Oswald with his kids on Christmas day. And it's like, that dude's 24. That's my age, man. You just get into like this aspect of like, whether you agree he did it or not. Like, I, like I said, I'm open, I'm open-minded to all this type of stuff. I don't think he did, but it, I just think it's a lot of the stuff that you're disconnected from. And it's a lot like I th what I think is important. I mean, I, it kind of boils back to the beginning of your book of why remembering, you know, the dead, you need to be still connected to some aspect of these things. They, they can't just be names on a wall and they only mean something to you if it's a family member. You should know who these that's, people are. That's the whole point. And I think that's what you were asking earlier, too, about, you know, do the, do the president or does the government official care? And at the end of the day, you can't seem disconnected from the moment because the dead soldier does matter to the soldier's family or extended family or, or relatives. It, it is meaningful. It is a person who's been lost. And so you have to, even if you're not necessarily emotionally connected, you have to, as a government official, you have to show 
some sort of connection there. Otherwise you become disconnected completely is what you're, what you're describing. And, and that's not a good strategy if you want to stay in politics very long. You have to show that you care. Um, so, you know. Well, that's a, that's a bad thing for our media as well, too. Whenever they go and interview someone, they're like, hey, don't get too much information on the person, you know, just uh, the event. And it's like to not be connected to the situation. You want to be disconnected so you can write a story about it. And it's just like, that's a terrible well, way to do it. And it was a really bad job. Like, unfortunately, these mass shootings get more and more and more. I was just reading earlier, there's a shooting going on in Cincinnati right now at a high school. There's an active shooter. And the and when when these things really kind of began after Columbine and stuff, the media was accused a lot because they would they would go up to the victims as they're leaving and try to get an interview on the spot. It was so distasteful. I, I don't know that they do that as much anymore. Maybe they do. I just don't watch the news. But Good man. You don't watch the news. Neither do I. Yeah. Uh, it's, uh, it was so unethical, I thought. In, and I think a lot of news media, you know, they're trying to get the story. Um, but literally confronting someone as they're experiencing the trauma, it just, it's just, it's very distasteful. And as well, you say, disconnected. But they are trying to, like, tell the story, I guess, from their perspective. They're trying to tell the story as it happens. And it shapes the way you and I view it, you know, so I guess that's what they would say. Bro, they just made a, a documentary or a movie about the Gabby Petito, the missing influencer that I had never knew existed until they started showing me on their TV. I was like, I, wait a minute, how many influencers do we have in this country? I swear to God, I want to look up the number, but they made a documentary about it. It's like, damn, that wasn't even that long ago. It had to be like a year or maybe two years. And they're already making a film about it with reenactments of the cast where I'm just like, I don't know, that even feels a little bit too soon, but and that's Hollywood, I guess, media in general. Yeah, well, and, and it plays out like, uh, what is it? Alex Jones is on trial now because on his show, he keeps for the longest time, I guess he's now apologized to the families, but he said, you know, you guys faked uh, Sandy Hook. That was all, you know, paid actors. I mean, talk about disconnected and talk about dehumanizing uh, to put out there on the airwaves that, you know, this tragedy never happened. Uh, that's the epitome of being disconnected, I think, from the grief that people are actually feeling, you know. So I find that to be very troubling. He's deep in a hole, I can tell you that much. Um, I'm not going there. <laughs> uh, that's a, that's a, I'll use that as an example to show like, uh, I'll use that as an example to show how, what can happen when you're disconnected from, from human beings and what, when people are suffering, <laughs> you, you, you really can't, you, you have to make some sort of connection with them. I, I never put it above people to try and find a way to make profit. Maybe some people obviously are good at heart, but a lot of these businesses and stuff, a lot of it's just profit incentivized like google saying they're going to ban search results to cloud out disinformation because they care about you as an individual i'm like you guys are making billions of dollars i don't buy that but i mean i don't know i <laughs> but think you know this was this is interesting so yes but this is not like a new problem like when the when embalming came along to take care of the dead and the whole like uh funeral industry arose like the funeral industry got accused of doing this they still get accused of doing this you know they charge an exorbitant amount to 
embalm someone or to bury someone. But, you know, from their perspective too, it's a service that they offer that they should be compensated for, they would argue. And, and it, and it helps uh, the grieving process, whether it does or doesn't, I guess, is up to the individual. But um, these complaints about money, and particularly when it comes to these human emotions of grieving and mourning and loss. Yeah, they're always going to be controversial, for sure. Well, man, I really appreciate the time you've given me to do the podcast. Um, is there a place where people can find any of your links? Like, do you have a Twitter? Do you have a web? I mean, I know you have a website, but do you have Dude, a Twitter? Yeah, uh, I Twitter at capital S, capital T, capital B, O-N-T-R-A-G-E-R. So S-T Bontrager. I'm about to follow it. I really capital use S. social media, but S <laughs> by capital S. Capital S, capital T, capital B. Is in boy, O N T R A G E R. It's my last name, Bondrager. And you can get the book. It's in paperback now, so you can get the book at the University of Nebraska Press website. You can also get it at Amazon, and uh, you can request it uh, at your bookstore and things like that. So, um, uh, yeah, those are my main, my main, my main handle. Awesome. Well, I'm gonna link it all in the description. It's been a pleasure chatting with you, and thanks, thanks for listening. Yeah, it was a pleasure. Yeah. Uh, good luck with uh, with podcast going forward. Thanks, man. And thanks for listening to this episode of Out of the Blank. Stay tuned for next episode.